Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. We're happy to have you with us today. As always, if you like the program, be sure to rate it, share it with a friend, and you can always send us an email at bci at ksu.edu because we like hearing questions from the listeners. On today's episode, we're gonna, we've got a great guest with us today who's actually not really a guest, works with us every day, is Patty Dollarhide, who's our dietitian here at the Beef Cattle Institute. She's done a lot of great work through her career. We're going to discuss a tour that she put on yesterday with some of the food service professionals, talk about Patty's experience in the non-commercial industry, a little bit about the importance of research in dietetics, and then sustainability as we, as we go through the day. But before we jump into that, I wanted to ask you guys, since we're since you've done a lot of work with the non-commercial, and this is, I think, the area that people don't think about as much in the beef industry. So, is, what what is the non-commercial? Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Oh, okay. What falls into non-commercial food service? Because actually, about thirty-five percent of the beef sales go to non-commercial entities. So, when I say non-commercial, who falls into that category? And I'll let you guys kind of fill that in. Uh, well, I, I basically it's things that aren't. Restaurants that aren't some, commercial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Non-commercial is things that aren't commercial. I appreciate that definition. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> and it uh, might be a business leading because a non-commercial may have a restaurant <laughs> in their facility. Oh, there you go. So, so I, I'm thinking um, of hospitals. I know that's a, a pretty big yep. uh, food uh, consumer. Hospitals. Yeah. Yeah. K through 12 schools, college Kids. universities. Yep. Mm-hmm. Colleges, universities, businesses. Like uh, a business healthcare. that has their own. Yep. Cafeteria or something like that. Cafeteria, military. So how how many colleges are there in the United States? More than two. (laughs) More than two. Let's see. Let me think. Uh, Let's see. There's 50 states. No, I I am going to (laughs) count. I'm going to say there are 500 colleges and universities. Patty? I'd probably add a zero to that. Uh, Patty would be right. (laughs) 5,000. Wow. Colleges and universities. Yeah, so that counting. does seem a little bit. I mean, 10 per state's too low. Yeah. You're right. You're right. You're right. But you're counting a lot. So 5,000 colleges and universities. How about elementary and secondary high schools in the U.S.? Just high schools or Public schools? and private. Just like all, all grades of schools? Yes. Or? Oh, no. Uh, so if that was 5,000, let's go, oh, my heavens, 200,000. 200,000. At least that. I really don't know, but I would guess higher. Yeah. So 100,000 schools that are public and about 33,000 that are private. So okay. just just from that standpoint, and also as you as you look at, and I, I looked up some facts before you the show. You didn't just know this ahead no, of time. No, I didn't know yeah. this. And then on the military, there's about 3,000 different retail stores that are either Army, Navy, that they sell. So when we think about non-commercial, it's a, it's a sizable area. And as we said earlier, about a third of the beef goes into that area. So we actually worked on with Patty, and Patty's a, a dietitian. We'll get into some of her experiences a little bit later on, but I wanted to talk about, you, you've really had a focus on this non-commercial side, and so we did a tour yesterday with some of the folks from K-State Dining Services. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about 
why the tour? What's the what was the goal there? Well, I think one other thing to add to the non-commercial side is just for the beef industry, it's a great. We talk about carcass utilization a lot, and non-commercial really they use cuts that are not just middle meats, mm-hmm. and so that's one of the reasons why I think non-commercial could be a focus for the beef industry. It, it helps yeah. move. A lot of our roasts and things like that. Right, right, ground beef and roasts. But non-commercial, why we did the tour is because I have um, had my boots on the ground in a lot of other different places in the beef industry, and it's been um, interesting to listen to some of the information that they receive from other sources, maybe not as credible as the Beef Cattle Institute, and they have preconceptions about um, how cattle are raised, what they eat, and how they get on their plate. So... Um, when I was in sales, it was more difficult to tell that story, but working for a university and having the opportunity to tell the facts um, made the tour something that I really wanted to try. And it, and it was a great experience because w- we had a couple producers come in, one from the feed yard, one from the cow-calf side. They talked about their experiences, and then we went out and looked at cattle. And I, and I really, the cool part that you did at the end of the day, and I want you to talk a little bit about that, is... You had the chefs and dietitians. They made a ration, but not for people. Right. What was? How did that work? Well, it was really amazing, and it was just taking all the things that we take for granted in the cattle in, um, industry that cattle have a rumen, and talking about what kind of food that they eat. And I believe that that was a um, that was very powerful for them to see that they're eating things that we cannot eat. We can't convert these kind of calories. So. Um, it was very powerful to see it, smell it, touch it, talk about how much water's in it, talk about how much water the cattle drink, depending on what they're eating, and to also talk about the sustainability of where does the feed come from. It may be a byproduct. It may be something that we have excess of in Kansas that they don't have somewhere else in the country, so that might be part of the reason why we have so many feeding operations in Kansas. It, it was kind of fun to watch the chefs putting together a meal of you know, alfalfa hay, some corn silage, some corn gluten feed, and a little steam flake corn, and, and mixing it up kind of like they would for a human a, a human customer. Yeah. And I, I think, I don't think they'd probably made that kind of a um, meal before. The same mix. But they actually took the ingredients, mixed them together. The other, the other thing that they were, which I think is a, a great process, and like you said, Patty, it, it's food that it's feed that doesn't go to humans typically. The other thing that we did was went out and they looked at how cattle are actually handled, where they live, their living environment. What were, what were some of your take-homes from, from that process? I think they were amazed at how, the science behind it because um, they were talking about low-stress cattle handling and how some of the things have changed over the years. And even in my what I consider short career, 35 years of seeing what used to go on in a feedlot and then when people were handling cattle, there was a lot more injuries. The people, like they yeah. did get run over. Yeah. And the things that they were showing us yesterday about how the, um, how the pins work, how the cattle sh- uh, shoot worked, um, is all very high uh, technology that I don't think people un- realize until they've seen it, you know, the, the investment that people have as producers and um, people in the industry. Yeah, and the other thing that I think that they really enjoyed or took, uh, in, yeah, enjoyed was interacting with those producers. We had a, a feedlot producer and a cow-calf producer, both of whom talked about their, their daily activities, what they do with the cattle and how they take care of them. 
And again, you know, there's a lot of things that we take for granted in the beef industry. It's like, well, of, of course, if a cow's having difficult birth, we go out and help them, even if it's the middle of the night. And yes, we get up and feed the cattle first thing in the morning. And and just kind of those reminders of this is this is the day-to-day um, job of raising cattle. And I think they really enjoyed those stories. And I think we take those for granted in our industry. And I think that's what drives me back to the cattle industry is that I trust and respect the people that work in beef production. But I have had the, the fortune of knowing them and knowing um, how they operate and being part of that. Whereas most people, if you figure that less than 2% of the people under are connected with agriculture these days, they haven't had that opportunity. But I think that, and that's the beauty of events like this, because I learned a lot. I learned a lot about how that non-commercial food service works. What are some of the challenges with their job? I mean, they talked about the issues of, of course, price of the purchases that they make, but also they want to satisfy their end customer just as much as anybody else. And they have a very difficult job because they're serving food 24-7, probably not not 24 hours a day, but it seems like it at times. But they have a busy time and they're serving food all the time. So it's those challenges and the bridging that I think is really important, making those relationships, because then once you develop them, we were comfortable asking them questions, and I learned a lot through the process because you've been through some of those experiences, and we, we kind of glossed over in the intro because you're, uh, you have experiences in several different facets of the industry from hospital to distributor to processor. Tell, tell us a little bit about that and a little bit about how you've come to here. Well, it is kind of a crooked road. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but what I've learned is that's the way a lot of people are. That's right. Yes. So I started out in Ag Econ at K-State. I lasted one year, and I did not flunk out. But I decided <laughs> I wanted to go to school to learn more about this animal health technology that was going on at, at Colby Community Co- College. And so I went to that two-year program, and I probably learned more about health care in general mm-hmm. than I ever did anywhere because uh, I got to experience a lot of different things, and I worked in that for a few years. Then I decided to go back to school and become a dietitian here at K-State, got into dietetics, worked with um, acute care medicine, and realized the, I was shocked, though, that the, the veterinarians always said, are they eating, eating drinking, and pooping? And we spent a lot of time talking about that. When I got into human medicine, they didn't they forgot that they hadn't eaten for ten days and they had, you know, critical wounds and they had broken bones and they had abscesses, but people kinda overlooked that back in the day, that's back in the early eighties. Then they did these studies like the skeleton in the closet and they realized mm-hmm. that really we have some malnourished people in the hospital. And the part that's kinda sobering is we still have those studies that we have malnourished people in our parts of the country. So nutrition's always been really important. I got into food service management, working in the hospital for a long time, and really looked at it. We we hired some of those chefs that were tired of working um, all the weekends and all the holidays, and we hired them into the hospital and really wanted to make our food taste good. Because what good Because that's it not do? typically what you think of well, hospital food. Don't think of that, yes. but, right? but it's interesting to tie those two things together because, uh, you know, uh, a, a person that is ill or has a wound that needs to heal. I mean, that's I mean that's the ideal or the most important person to have a high quality diet. You know, high protein diet. Really, you know, consuming the calories they need, the minerals and vitamins they yes. need, and also probably the person that maybe is least hungry. And yeah. you know, and again, if the food isn't really uh, appetizing. Uh, you, you might be really working against the healing process that you're trying to accomplish in a hospital. So were, were you able to do anything to 
change protein consumption? Well, they would call me a liberalized dietitian in the hospital because I wanted to have maybe a little bit more fat in the food because, again, fat is flavor. Get those calories. And fat is also forgiving when you make an uh, – if you've ever cooked and tried to cook a lean piece of meat, you can be very, very delicious if you eat it right away. But if you have to put it in a warming cabinet and hold it and then somebody maybe puts it in the microwave before the person eats it – it's going to be tough as shoe leather. And so what good does it do if you serve that kind of food in a if hospital? If they don't eat it. If they Which don't eat it. I hadn't thought about it. But that, logistically, it would be rare that it would come right from the cook stove oh, to yeah. the person, right? Because it's going to get delayed or it's got to go to this floor or that floor. Or they're not in their room. Ab- you got it. And so it's at least, we have to calculate at least about 40 minutes from the yeah. time it's cooked. And so, you know, so if you have something with a little bit more fat, uh, I, we were, we were, proudly the first certified Angus Beef Hospital, licensed hospital in the United States. And and one of the time one time one of the guys from the um, CAB program came up to me and goes, Why are you here? Aren't you the ones that like low fat? And I feel like, well, but we want our food to taste good. Mm-hmm. And so we spent a lot of time and w- that beef was very consistent. And we have a lot of training issues in hospitals. We have a lot of different kinds of people you're working with. Not Just everybody's like a great in the chef. Industry. Yeah. You know, we have different languages. We had 19 different languages down in Wichita. And so uh, it's a challenge. And so if you can take one piece out of it and buy the right product for the right application, it takes one less, one less thing out of the mix. Yeah. And then after the, after the hospital, you worked in distributor and then also with a processing group? Well, I got to work for a manufacturer, and that was my eye, that was eye-opening because as a dietitian, a lot of times you wonder why are these foods even created? You know, mm-hmm. what is yeah. their purpose? Why do we have chicken fried steaks that are as big as a plate? And yeah. when I went into manufacturing, I realized a lot of the reasons we have that is because that's what the customers have told us that they want. Yeah. And they probably weren't, the, their, their customers probably weren't just dietitians. No, <laughs> no that's probably true. No, because Bob and I both uh, ask for a chicken fried steak as big as a plate. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that was a that was interesting. It's also to see behind the scenes, you know, uh, how products are made, how the research and development works. You know, if it isn't profitable for the company, there's no reason to go that extra mile and put more nutrition labeling on something. You know, we may go back to the averages of USD. A handbook number eight, rather than create a label that costs two thousand bucks, because they have to they have to coop, recoup their costs. And I think I got my Ag Econ lesson while I was working for a manufacturer. While you were working there, and 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 also the importance of as as we've talked and we talked yesterday on the tour and and at other times we've talked about the importance of research and how bringing that research to the table and and not promoting one way or the other, but but really. How, how do you do that in, in this scenario where we're talking about bridging those gaps and talking to people, especially in the non-commercial side, how do we get them that information? I think that they are hungry for that information. And so right now, the people that are giving them that information seem to be quoting statistics that are not always um, beef-friendly, and they may be from global numbers, they may be from other countries that aren't as good at feeding cattle as we are. And so um, for somehow we've we've kind of lost the trust along the way. And whether that's because we haven't done a great job of telling our story, we have great stories, we have been doing all these things that have made us, we may have called it conservation back in the day, we may have 
called it uh, being more profitable, you know, getting more product with less resources, but we didn't do a great job of telling our customers how we were doing that. So there's been other people out there talking to them and they mm-hmm. talk to them about plant forward and they talk to them about going to have meatless Mondays and, and, you know, being vegetarian. And I think that um, people can make those decisions. I just want them to have the right information. Right. So as part of a university, uh, being part of a research department where we can present information and let credible information, not the fear mongering kind and let people make their own decisions. Yeah, absolutely. And that's predicated based on those relationships. And I I think as we've talked before, when we have conversations with either non-commercial or commercial people, they're getting a lot of the same questions. And and we talked before we came on the show about we could come up with a list of frequently asked questions and a lot of them are going to be similar. It, It was to me, in some of those conversations with we've had both with that group yesterday and a few other groups, it's eye-opening just because, just like I have no experience in that food service arena, many of them don't have a lot of experience in the cattle arena. And it's interesting just to share notes and compare stories. And we face different challenges, but we face a lot of the same big level problems mm-hmm. <laughs> that we have to deal with, right? How do we how do we make sure we produce the right product, right time, and efficiently? And it's it's just a fact. Price is always going to be there. Price, quality, yep. consistency. So some of the things that consumers ask us to do that are maybe more sustainable, maybe they drive the price a little differently. You know, maybe. Yep. And so that becomes the challenge is that at the end of the day, you can if you inv- make a lot of investments, you have to be able to recoup them. So, and you brought up the buzzword, sustainability. So tell me, what does sustainability mean to you? Well, to me, it means that you have to be able to be be profitable so that you can continue to do what you're doing. And um, consumers don't particularly like to hear us talk about profit. So they also like to talk about people and the people we work with and the people, our environment. And again, in the agriculture industry, I think we feel like we've We've covered all those bases. We just haven't used that same language. So th- they want us to be transparent. They want us. They want to see what we're doing. And I think yesterday was a good example of how people got a, a, a little bit of a view into our world. One of my ahas was um, when they were talking about they didn't realize that cattle, like they thought they were born in a pasture and they were in a pasture till they were processed. And when we talked about how long they live, how many different places they go during their life, I think that was kind of a, an aha. And it was also an aha that we cannot grass finish cattle in Kansas. Right. There's, and, there's not enough green growing grass enough weeks of the year to make that work. Right now, there's not a whole lot out there. Well, unless you had – it wouldn't be green growing grass. You'd have to use stored forage or something like that, which is, you know, different than grazing. Mm-hmm. But it's – and I think that's one of the things that as you have those – conversations because you you don't always put that together when you only receive part of the story and that's one of the things that you've done well is is telling a big piece of the story working on sustain and as you said sustainability multi-faceted and you've been involved in the u.s roundtable for sustainable beef what's that experience been like it's been very rewarding because it's seeing p- people actually involve the producers, involve the people in the industry. So we have, I'm on the retail group, but yet they're getting to meet and learn what goes on in the other segments, as well as the producers are getting to learn and see what's important to the consumers. And I think there's been a, a lot of learning along the way. So, so my hope for that committee is that people learn that, wow, the beef industry really 
is doing something to try to be more sustainable. Let's look at let's look at the metrics that we're talking about that can really change the industry, can really move the needle, as opposed to just saying don't eat meat with antibiotics or don't you know don't put them in a feedlot. And I think animal welfare is another piece of this whole discussion Next that part, yeah. people bring up all the time about animal welfare. And again, it's, we have a lot of improvements that have been going on are still going on but do you do you think it's fair to say that because uh, i think most people are not illogical i think they just have different experiences that frames their logic so sometimes from our perspective or from my perspective i see somebody say something you go why would you say that but their experiences have crafted them to say that like the antibiotics issue or some of the animal welfare issues or some of the others because I think most of us are in agreement. We want to do the right thing. And I think that's one of the things when you talk about sustainability, and, and you kind of brought it up earlier. Yes, there's room for improvement. There's room for continually Absolutely. getting better. But also, you look about at our history. You know, I remember from being a, a, a young child working on soil conservation, and many we use different words, but you know, improving productivity per acre. Uh, you know, all the things that we've talked about. Uh, from the time I've started in the beef industry, have really had something to do with sustainability. It, you know, it is, it, again, it's, it's forage management, it's animal care. It, there's a, a lot that the industry has always been doing or been doing for a very long time, but we haven't necessarily told our story very well. So although there is room for improvement, just explaining kind of where we are, I think, surprises people. And, and they, they're kind of maybe surprised how long we've been working on soil conservation and how long we've been working on, you know, animal nutrition and animal health. Um, that's not the story they've heard. And, and for someone in the industry, we forget to say that because it's just second nature to us. We've been in it yeah. our whole lives. But it's, and, and as you said, there's, there's room for improvement. We can make that, take that to the next step, but using the right terms and communicating, which you, you've done a great job, Patty, of bridging those kind of bridging those gaps as we go forward and and patty has we'll put it in the show notes she's written a couple articles about some of these tours that she's been on uh we'll put a link to that in the show notes the other thing i want to put in the show notes and i want to bring up from yesterday man we had some good food the kansas <laughs> the kansas beef council came you know what the kansas beef council has some excellent <laughs> recipes and they and, and they, they came proved it and actually made some of those recipes yes. for us. so what was your Favorite thing that you had? Uh, okay, well, several. But this is, I mean, I have to stick with this one because this is what I told my family when I got home last night. A trail mix with beef jerky in it. So it was beef jerky, almonds, uh, craisins, and M&Ms. And if that sounds good to you, you're exactly right. That was, yeah. it was, it was awesome. What about you, Patty? What was your favorite? Oh, I had to, I really liked the, the took a little bit more prep, but the, um, the, little cucumber oh, those were good too. beef on top of it and it was a really nice appetizer and so many times when you do appetizers it's hard to get protein and yeah. and as a dietitian i really am an advocate of we should eat more protein throughout the day as opposed to just one big steak yeah so i like so what do you like the best i i will tell you and it will i, I typically don't like soup i typically don't like stews as much mm-hmm. but we had this stew yesterday that was beef and sweet potatoes and cranberries i don't even know what all else was in there mostly stuff that when i listen to the ingredients i go yeah that's in fact i told my wife and she said you wouldn't eat that and i said i did i ate two bowls it was great (laughs) so all of those recipes will be online uh it's certainly worth trying and that i I would highly recommend this too (laughs) yeah all all three of those that we just mentioned were 
pretty pretty darn good great for a cold day thanks for joining us patty we appreciate you you coming in and thanks bob all right we'll talk to you next time